Here we are again with a new series in the podcast. This one is the cultural history of Satan. We're going to be looking at the history of this idea of a being personifying evil within, first of all, Judean culture and Judaism, and then inherited within Christianity. And we're going to see how this fits within the overall worldviews of Christianity as, as the idea of Satan develops through the centuries up to the present to our modern notions and picture of who Satan is. This first episode in the podcast goes back to the prehistory of this cultural notion of a being and personifying evil. And so we need to go back to Mesopotamia around 2000 BCE to start to see an important component, namely the combat myth, which is what we deal with in these first couple of episodes. We also briefly deal with the question of Satan's context within the ideology, within the worldview of apocalypticism. That's something you may be familiar with from a previous series on apocalypticism. So if you've heard that series already, you'll be a step up in understanding the context in which this idea of personified evil plays a role. It's within apocalypticism that Satan lives. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I think you will. You might enjoy it even more if you read along with us. The students that were in the course that have broken down into this podcast had ongoing readings in the original sources. So they would be reading ancient sources when we began in the ancient context. And you can get access to the readings we had if you go to philipharland.com, click on Courses, and then go down to the course outline for A Cultural History of Satan and you can read along as you listen to the podcast. I think you'll get far more out of it if you actually read some of the sources that we're extensively analyzing. That's the professor and me talking there. The word apocalypticism scholars use to refer to a particular ideology and cultural way of behaving and, and thinking that existed beginning about 200 BCE within Judaism, within Judean culture and that continues to exist today, so that we still have apocalyptic movements today. The, the word apocalypticism comes from the Greek word for revealing. So that the last book of the New Testament that you may or may not be familiar with is, is sometimes, what's it called in your Bible for anyone who's come across it? Revelation. revelation. It's called Revelation, that's a translation of the Greek word apokalypsis. So it could be called Apocalypse, which it sometimes is by scholars. Scholars might say John's Apocalypse, or they might say John's Revelation. So the word Apocalypsis, the Greek word, means from being hidden, Revelation. But scholars have developed this scholarly notion of apocalypticism to study a variety of phenomena, both ideologies and behaviors and groups acting out on an ideology. So that Apocalypticism envelops a certain type of thinking that I wanted to sketch for you right now and then show you how that's the framework within which Satan emerges. In fact, you wouldn't have apocalypticism without Satan and vice versa. They're, they're together. Let me just sketch out for you what this ancient Judean worldview was that the Christians inherited and continued to hold. And that is, we are living in an evil age dominated by evil powers. At the head of those evil powers is evil personified himself, whatever name is given to him. God has a plan to end this current evil age 
and set up God's age, which will be a perfect age. When God intervenes, it will be a cataclysmic intervention. God has a plan to intervene in a massive way to wipe out evil. And God will set up a perfect kingdom, a perfect heaven, a perfect place for the righteous to live and will judge the wicked. Humanity is divided into two camps, just like there's God and Satan. Well, there's the people on the side of Satan and there's the people on the side of God. There are only two camps. There's the righteous and the wicked. And the destiny of the wicked is obliteration or constant torture. And the destiny of the righteous is eternal bliss. Satan being destroyed along with those who were on his side. So this worldview, as you can see from the way I sketched it, partly, but it's true no matter how you study it, that Satan's at the heart of it. A battle between God and Satan is what the apocalyptic worldview is. This dualistic worldview. So, certain Judeans, contemporary with Jesus and before Jesus, Jesus being one of the Judeans who held this view, held this worldview, but not all Judeans did. The Jesus movement, what later developed into Christianity, is an example of a Judean movement who has apocalypticism at, at the center of its ideology. But not all Judeans did have that at the center of their thought. But that's one Judean movement that did. The Dead Sea sect is another Judean movement that had apocalypticism at the center of its thought. There are some forms of early Christianity that seem to sort of go a different direction with it. And we might touch on them. But the vast majority of early Christians and then Christianity as a whole continue to have this apocalyptic framework that we just sketched there. The idea of a battle between God and Satan, that we're living in an evil age, that God has a plan to end the evil age, and set up a perfect kingdom, that whole framework, and that Satan's at the center of that battle that's ongoing in the present evil age. So that starts back in about 200 BCE, our first evidence for that way of thinking, 200 BCE. So uh, we're, we're going to get into this whole question of where did Satan come from. My main point for today, I always try and begin a lecture by giving you a sense of what my argument is, what my thesis is. And that is that evil personified figure only begins to emerge clearly in Judean literature in about 200 BCE. From 200 BCE, we have a document known as First Enoch. It's in that writing that we have the story of the fallen angels. So that's the beginning point from which Satan develops. There's no figure of Satan there yet, even in 200 BCE. There are other angels that are named as sort of the head angels that rebel against God. But that's when we first get angels rebelling against God and therefore the development of the idea of evil angels that are opposed to God's whole plan, right? And trying to foil God's plan. So that only emerges within a certain Judean writing for the first time in 200 BCE. The ideas might have been there before that, but our earliest evidence for it, 200 BCE. But what I want to do for you today is go back to 3000 BCE and see what predecessors there are that later come to play a role in the development of Satan once he's there. That after 200 BCE, these factors start to blend together and play a role in how Satan is expressed. So we're sort of going back to his prehistory before Satan exists. 
gradually there's a series of civilizations that aren't opposed to one another, but rather sort of take on the previous civilization's culture and develop it in new ways and add their own things, and it go, keeps growing. So it starts the earliest civilization down in Sumer. The next one that sort of takes the baton is Akkad, that shares a lot in common the culture of Sumer and develops it in new ways and already has its own culture that blends in with it. And then gradually things move north to Babylonia, which isn't shown on here. Well, Babylonia is a larger area than Babylon itself. The Babylonian Empire is sort of in the center here. And then Assyria. All these civilizations, Sumer, Akkad, Babylonia, and Assyria, share in common a whole lot of mythological notions that they express and how they talk about their gods. They share in common the same gods, even though sometimes they use different names for them. They often identify one another's gods with each other. Although there's distinctions among them, there's differences between each of these civilizations, there's still a lot in common between them that allows us to talk about ancient Mesopotamian culture. So we're only getting snippets of information about it, but it seems quite clear that there's a commonality among them, a continuity that exists despite the differences among these different civilizations. One of the commonalities among them is within their stories of the gods, within their mythology, is a consistent recurring theme. And it's the theme I want to go into right now. The theme that scholars have labeled the combat myth. By that, scholars never use the word myth as falsehood. They don't, not in the way we popularly would use it, right? When they say myth, they just mean story. The Greek word mythos has to do with story, right? So stories about the gods. The combat myth is a story theme that recurs in all kinds of Mesopotamian writings. And I'm going to give you some examples of it now. Because the combat myth has the notion of a god threatening the order of the gods, a young and up-and-coming god succeeding in slaying another god that has threatened the order of the society of the gods. That god is proclaimed king. Sometimes that god slay in slaying the chaotic monster or god actually creates the universe out of the slayed body of the chaos monster. So think of it as an up-and-coming young god fighting against another god that's like a monster, threatening the order of the universe mainly the order of the society of the gods. So a lot of these mythologies are about what the gods were doing before humans were created. This first one you're going to read for next time. Let me use it as an illustration of what the combat myth is. But let me quickly summarize what the combat myth is for you. A force, usually a monster, a god, right, who's a force, uh, portrayed as a monster, threatens cosmic and political order. This results in fear and confusion among the gods. This is a recurring pattern you find over and over again. So, a chaotic monster god threatening the order of the rest of the gods. The rest of the gods don't know what the hell to do. They're in a panic. The assembly of the gods gets together and tries to figure out what to do, and they're unable to find someone who can defeat the monster, who can defeat the god who has threatened chaos. In a few of these mythologies, 
they have interviews where they bring in, bring in all the old gods that are well known for being able to do the hardest stuff. He'll be able to kill the monster, who, monster god who's threatened our whole society. Let's bring him in for interviews and see if he'll do it. Interviews are held. No one can do it. Everyone sort of turns it down. I can't fight that monster. I may be the best god you guys knew about that was a warrior, but I can't do it. A young, up-and-coming god who isn't expected to be able to do it steps up, successfully defeats the chaotic monster god, and is therefore established king of the gods as a result of saving the society of the gods. This is polytheistic, so there's all kinds of gods. There's no sense of monotheism at all back at this period, right? So he's acclaimed king as a result of restoring order. So the concepts that are quite prominent here are, are chaos and order, not good and evil. I want to start by saying what's not here. Good and evil are not here. There's no moral element to the chaotic god threatening the society of the gods besides that he's doing something that causes chaos. But what I'm saying is there's no good and evil concept here. It's about chaos versus order. So let's not read back into Mesopotamia something that develops later. Definitely the story of Satan, once it develops, is about evil versus good. The evil Satan versus the good God. But at this stage, it's different gods in the story and one god threatening the order of the uh, society of the gods. Another god setting back the chaos monster and slaying the monster and reestablishing order. So that's what it's about. Order and chaos, not about good and evil. So that's what's different about this compared to Satan. You've got to remember, we're not just saying this is all Satan, right? We're just seeing the predecessors long before Satan's on the scene. Let's talk about Ninurta and Anzu as an example, and next time you all can help me work through the actual reading you had. But let me just sketch out quickly the plot, and then you can uh, try and figure it out in more detail for next time when you're reading it. The story of Ninurta versus Anzu is uh, probably originally a Sumerian one, so that earliest civilization we were talking about in Mesopotamia, but it gets inherited by the Akkadians and also gets adapted by the Babylonians. So we have uh, and attested in different contexts that they know about this story. So it goes back probably to about 2000 BCE. But the form in which we have it is from later on. And you can read about that in your reading. It'll tell you exactly the manuscripts. We have two manuscripts of it. I think I put them both in your course pack. And they'll mention that, uh, the dates there. The story goes like this. Anzu is a god and Enlil is a god. So Enlil is the king of the gods at the beginning of this story. And as king of the gods, he possesses the tablets of destiny. Is a term they use, or the register of destiny, depending on the translation. This register of destiny, or tablets of destiny, uh, are part of the reason why a certain god is the king of the gods, because they possess it. It's basically everything that will happen in this tablet. So the god who possesses it is king of the gods. Sometimes, even in your reading, this might give you a heads up, they'll talk about the Enlil ship. There's a guy named Enlil, the god, the king of the gods, 
But the envilship is the possession of kingship. And it's closely tied in with the possession of these tablets of destiny. If you don't have the tablets of destiny, you're not going to be much of a king of the gods anymore. You're not going to be one at all. And this is a consistent thing that recurs in several of these different Mesopotamian myths. It's not just in this Anzu one, the tablet of destinies. So you have Enlil, the king of the gods, and he, through some assistance from some of the other gods, gets advice that Anzu would be a good attendant of the king. Anzu's a god too. There's only gods in this story. And so Anzu becomes the assistant to Enlil, the king of the gods. The story goes that Anzu notices the power that Enlil possesses. He begins to be jealous of that power. He begins to want to have the Enlil ship. He begins to want to have the kingship of the gods. He begins to want to possess the tablet of destinies that gives a god the kingship. So this is a gradual process in the story where Anzu is just the assistant of Enlil, not an enemy of Enlil, but gradually the jealousy leads him to betray Enlil. What happens in the story is Enlil's taking a bath, and what better time to try and steal the Tablet of Destinies. You might want to steal your friend's stuff when they're taking a shower, it might work too. So Anzu knows the most vulnerable time for Enlil. For some reason, Enlil doesn't know this is going to happen in the Tablet of Destinies. Don't expect consistency from ideology of all kinds, including ancient Mesopotamian mythology. If you use your modern reason, you're going to miss the point. He finds an opportunity when Enlil's bathing where he takes the Tablet of Destinies and takes off. He literally takes off because Anzu is portrayed as a bird god, as a bird and a god. So in that action, Anzu has betrayed the king of the gods, and it's partly motivated in the story by jealousy. Those ideas within this mythology sort of echo later on in the story of Satan. The jealousy and the attempt to take someone else's power will be important later on. We're not saying that the people who developed that later knew about this exact story. We're just saying that within this combat myth, there's a variety of elements that later come to play a role, somehow, we don't know how, within the way that Satan develops later in later years. So there's the jealousy and the rebellion is what I'm trying to draw attention to here. As is typical in these combat myths, everything's chaotic. Enlil's basically totally impotent now. He has no power. He's no longer the king. Not only is he not king of the gods, but he's just basically nothing. The whole society of the gods was based on Enlil being the king. So, total confusion, the way that the mythology expresses it is silence. The gods are dumbfounded and silent. They just don't know what to do. They start having interviews in this one that you're going to read about. They interview all the well-known warriors, warrior gods, and uh, try and find someone who can successfully go and slay the monster, bird monster god, Anzu and reestablish order. Everything's in chaos now. Part of the story says that even things don't grow anymore as a result of this. Water has been held back. 
by the stealing of the Tablet of Destiny. There's no agriculture anymore, which the gods live by somehow. Um, and so they interview, can't find anyone. A young god named Ninurta is brought forward by Ea, another god. And uh, Ea brings forward this young, sort of little-known god, Ninurta, who doesn't seem to be the guy you would expect to be able to do, succeed at doing what none of the other gods can do, but he does. He has two battles. The first battle where he has no success in slaying Anzu. He fights with Anzu. It's a battle. That's why we call it the combat myth. The myth of the fight between two gods, which later develops into God versus Satan fight, right? That's the main point we're making. But now we're just saying it's two gods. It's not evil versus good. It's just two gods battling with one another. Nanurta successfully slays Anzu on the second try. And we'll get into the details of how he does that next week. And I won't go into uh, all the details of it, just to save some more for what we can analyze next week. Nanurta, therefore, gets set up as the king of the gods. Nanurta inherits the Enlilship, is the way you'll see it stated sometimes. He has slayed Anzu and gets the Tablet of Destinies, and Nanurta is acclaimed the king of the gods by the other gods. Enlil's still around, he's not dead. Uh, he's, just, he's just no longer king of the gods in the story. He was king of the gods, but now he's not. Now remember that a lot of these myths are told by scribes who belong to a particular city-state within that whole area of Mesopotamia, or within all of Sumer, or within all of Akkad, or all of Babylonia, those areas I told you. So sometimes the god who wins is the patron deity of the city where the scribe lives, right? And sometimes someone will rewrite the same story and put in their god as the king of the gods. That it's Ashur, the king of the Assyrians, that successfully defeats the monster instead of Ninurta, who is the god of a particular city-state. So in, in some of that politics is going on in the background that we're not going to go into, right? Where you're proclaiming your god the king of the gods, your patron deity of your city versus the patron deity of someone else's city. Still acknowledging that there was a time when Enlil was the king of the gods. He's not a bad guy, but he's no longer king of the gods. There's not any tendency towards monotheism in the sense of trying to put down the other gods, but you do have a tendency to really put up your favorite god for your city. So that's part of what's going on with every one of these, by the way. Because Marduk, the next one we're going to go to, is actually the patron deity of Babylon. So in the Babylonian period... When scribes are writing stories about the gods, they have Marduk being the young up-and-coming god who successfully slays a monstrous threat from another god. Let me explain that story now a little bit so that you'll begin to build up a picture of a consistency here. And then we can see why that's relevant to the history of Satan. The next battle is Marduk versus Tiamat. Usually with the ancient Mesopotamian writings, they're titled by just their first phrase. So this is from When on High, the story of Marduk versus Tiamat. When on High is the name of the writing. This one's attested at various stages after 1000 BCE. Let me quickly sketch it for you, what the story is, so that you'll see how it relates to what we're talking about here. In this Enuma Elish, in the When on High document, it's the story of the origins of all the gods to begin with. It's a cosmogony, as you would call it. Scholarly way of talking about the birth of the gods. And in this case, it's a, a Mesopotamian cosmogony 
explaining how all the gods were born from two initial gods. Both the initial gods in the story are water. There's fresh water, Apsu or Absu. Apsu is fresh water. Tiamat is salt water. These, in the story of When on High, are the initial gods, and that's all there is. Fresh water and salt water. The story goes that as Apsu and Tiamat blended together in some way, they gave birth to other gods, which are the society of the gods. So they have children. Let's put it that way, because it'll help you understand the story. These children are the real troublemakers in the view of the parents. Apsu and Tiamat regret having had these children because Apsu in particular finds it's impossible to sleep and when he's awake, there's all kinds of racket from the kids. He's so upset about the disturbance that he gets from the offspring from him and Tiamat that he decides, let's do away with these kids. I've had enough of them. The kids, through the wisest god, Ea, Ea in many of the Mesopotamian myths is the god of wisdom. He's the guy you go to if you're trying to figure out something. If one god's trying to figure out what to do about fighting a chaos monster, you go to Ea. That's what happens in the Anzu myth. Here it's Ea that hears word of the plot of Apsu to kill all the rest of the gods, in other words, the offspring of Apsu and Tiamat. Ea then tries to develop a plan on what to do in order to stop this plan. And the plan is to kill Apsu. And so Ea, the god of wisdom, successfully slays Apsu, the freshwater. He slays him and he says, you know what? I'm going to make my palace right here smack dab in the middle of the dead Apsu. So from then on in, mytho in the mythology, you'll hear about Ea's home, which is in Apsu. Namely, the slayed god, his father, whom, whom he slayed in order to prevent all the rest of the gods from being killed. So there's an added element to this story. We're not yet to the combat myth, even though there is that combat there. Tiamat's a bit pissed off. Tiamat wants revenge. Tiamat still wants to kill all the rest of the gods, especially Ea, who has slayed Apsu. A lot of names here, but hopefully you're following the plot, which is the more important thing. Ea hears word that Tiamat is planning revenge and planning a war against the rest of the gods. So it's going to be a war of Tiamat saltwater, sometimes represented as a dragon or a giant serpent, and the rest of the gods. The rest of the gods are in trouble because Tiamat's pretty major. A major power. They're not sure what to do in this case. Before A.S. successfully slayed Absu, but they can't find, they do this whole interview process that we talked about with the Anzu myth, and try and find someone who can successfully lead the gods in a war against Tiamat. And ultimately, they can't find anyone among the old gods. And instead, it's a young, up-and-coming god again, Marduk, who's the up-and-coming god in the sense of also being the patron deity of Babylon, the new sort of center of the civilization. 
So a battle ensues between Tiamat and Marduk. Tiamat also has a figure named Kingu as a main commander of her armies. She creates all kinds of monstrous beings to fight against the other gods. It looks like she, Marduk may lose at times, but ultimately Marduk slays Tiamat. And there's a whole story. Actually, let me read you a little bit of that, just to give you a sense of what the poetry is like, too. Here's the description of the final bat- combat, where it's hand-to-hand combat between Marduk and Tiamat. Tiamat as seawater here. They strove in single combat, locked in battle. The Lord spread out his net to enfold her, Marduk did. The evil wind which followed behind, he let loose in her face. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume Marduk, so the dragon, sea dragon, opens her mouth to try and eat Marduk, he drove the evil wind that she closed not her lips. He really brings in a strong wind so that she blows up like a a balloon. As the fierce winds charged her belly, her body was distended and her mouth was wide open. He released the arrow, it tore her belly, it cut through her insides, splitting the heart. Having thus subdued her, he extinguished her life. So he blows her up like a giant balloon and then shoots an arrow and the end of Tiamat. She was the original god from which all gods came. But now she's been slayed. What happens next is Marduk flays the body of Tiamat and creates the universe we humans know out of the body of Tiamat, ripping her down the center, making one half the sky and one half the earth. He then gets the commander that has to be trapped too, the commander king who who was brought in by Tiamat and created by Tiamat, slays him and from the blood of King Hu creates human beings. So this story of the combat myth happens to also be the story of the origins of humanity. Not all of these combat myths are, but this one is. Some of the Israelite versions of it in the Bible are also the story of Yahweh creating the world by slaying the monster. So there's a a shared concept there that we're going to see soon enough. So there you have an early Akkadian and perhaps Sumerian version, Ninurta versus Ansu. Then we had a Babylonian version, Marduk versus Tiamat. Now we're going to move a little bit over towards Palestine. 